Hi, it's Cecilia. Fifth Emission is taking a break and we'll be back on Monday with fresh episodes. Today, we want to share this recent episode from our sister podcast, Fixing Our City, which examines solutions to some of San Francisco's biggest problems. This one looks at Portugal's decades-old decision to decriminalize drug possession. Could San Francisco learn something from this European country that had an opioid epidemic very similar to ours? Listen and subscribe to Fixing Our City, where Wherever you get Fifth Emission. Have a safe and healthy holiday. More people have died of overdoses in the last few years in San Francisco than from COVID. Opioids, particularly the extremely powerful version fentanyl, are a major factor in this health crisis. And we're not the first to have an opioid problem. It was almost impossible to find a Portuguese family that had no problems related to heroin. Portugal was in a similar situation in the 90s. Though nothing as potent as fentanyl had arrived on the scene, and it still hasn't today, opioid use was extremely widespread. Around 1% of Portugal's entire population had a heroin problem. Drug use laws were strict, and the threat of incarceration was real. But as the crisis unfolded, doctors and activists were developing a public health and harm reduction paradigm. Ultimately, they proposed what the country is now famous for, decriminalization. A family doctor, Jean Goulau, was one of the architects of this policy. What I take from that period was a huge support of the common citizen to the idea of decriminalizing drugs. Dr. Goulau is now the national coordinator for drugs and drug addiction in Portugal. When we came to the parliament, things were a little bit more complicated. Left-wing parties supporting the idea, conservatives opposing and saying, well, Portugal will become a paradise we, for drug users. We will have planes coming to Lisbon every day with people to use drugs freely. Or our children will start using drugs in very early ages. After all that, it was approved by the parliament and came into force in 2001. And since then, all the available indicators with some fluctuations, that's true, led us to Huge improvement in the the situation. There were fluctuations in the rate of drug use and in overdoses, as well as the number of murders. But the overall trend has been downward. In the late 90s, Portugal saw an overdose death a day on average. In 2019, there were 72 drug-induced deaths of any kind all year. The country used to have the highest rate of HIV in the European Union, seeing nearly 1,800 new cases in 1999. In 2016, it reported 30 new cases associated with drug use, and in 2019, zero. I'm Laura Wenis. Since we started the SF Next project, people have been telling us we should check out the Portuguese approach to drugs. This week, we're doing that. It's widely known that Portugal made this move to decriminalize possession, but actually making progress on problematic drug use also took an investment in outreach, treatment, and social services it took a major shift in mindset. Local policies here actually reflect a similar mindset. But at this point, San Francisco sees more overdose deaths a year than Portugal, even though it's got less than a tenth of the population. What can we learn from Portugal's decriminalization approach? From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. When Portugal decriminalized drugs, And yes, it was all illicit substances across the board. It's important to note they didn't legalize drugs. 
if I may compare, it's similar to what happened when you drive without your safety belt. Mm. The police officer will still stop you, may apply you a fine on site. In thesis, he may impose that you attend a training course for drivers, but you do not get the criminal record that stands for life and will stigmatize you and turn some aspect of your life much more difficult, such as getting a job, buying a house, getting a mortgage. But it's important to stress that it is still prohibited to use drugs in Portugal. So long as a person who's using drugs doesn't have an amount more than what's considered to be reasonable for personal use, they don't face criminal prosecution. Crucially, drug dealers still do. Instead of being sent to jail or fined, people caught using drugs are sent before something called a dissuasion commission. It's a panel of three people, a social worker, a psychologist, and a lawyer. As the name implies, they'll try to dissuade the person from continuing to use drugs in a problematic way. That is, if it is problematic. I would say that 80 to 90% are not problematic users, but some are in need of care, uh, either of uh, treatment or at least of education towards a safer use and some arm reduction measures that may be of benefit for their health. These panels approach the problem with the assumption that something's going wrong in a person's life that's contributing to their drug use. They try to develop a personalized plan. The commission tries to assess what kind of problems is this person facing in, in his life. For instance, I have someone who tells me, no, I have no problems with drugs. Drugs are not an issue in my life. But discussing and getting his family history and so on. So I can invite and address this person to the adequate responses in community. So the aim is to interrupt a career that can lead this person to a more problematic use later on. Generally, Galau says, people show up for their commission appointment. When they don't, they may be charged or ticketed and face penalties for failing to obey. To be clear, that doesn't mean that people don't receive what we generally understand as treatment, either inpatient facilities or outpatient treatment. Often, outpatient treatment is what's known as substitution or medication-assisted treatment, where a person takes a substance that prevents withdrawal. I asked Golau what the treatment options are in Portugal. Yes, the, the usual path is you search for help in a outpatient clinic. You are evaluated by medical doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, and so on, either on the history of the of consumption, the conditions, the intensity of use, and what are the consequences in your life. And then you may initiate an outpatient treatment. You receive some medication if needed, but you have, above all, you have psychiatric and psychological coaching, I would say. And it depends on the capacity that you have to, and the motivation that you have for the change. We may consider and agree with the patient that it's desirable to have time in patient clinic. We can use the detoxification clinic for a while, for two weeks, and then to assume a therapeutic community, uh, one year at least stay, where you learn how to live in community again and assume 
your limits and the limits of the others. But it depends a lot and we can, we have, in fact, different modalities available and it's possible to tailor-made the therapeutic project according with the conditions of the individual that you have in front of you. The public health component of Portugal's policy was actually in the works long before decriminalization. And having these consultations, education, treatment, and other resources available is a key part of the whole approach. You might take Oregon as a counterexample. Voters there approved reducing the penalty for drug possession down to just $100 in 2020. Someone who gets caught and ticketed can avoid the fine if they call a hotline for help. But it took two years for the money associated with the measure, which was meant to provide services, to get distributed. In the interim, most people who got issued a ticket ignored it, and hardly anyone fined actually pursued services. One expert told Oregon legislators that the state was definitely not following Portugal's example. Just decriminalizing is not the same thing. It has to come with a commitment to providing services and treatment. Portugal's decriminalization policy went into effect in 2001. A lot of groundwork had been laid before that. And let's be honest, a lot of things don't work the same way here as they do overseas. Like healthcare. Drug treatment, like any medical care in the U.S., can be expensive. And cost or insurance coverage can be a barrier to entry for treatment. I didn't think that was true in Portugal. Yes, that's not the case. I'm happy to, to have the universal healthcare system for free in almost all the modalities. For instance, for a therapeutic community, we have only three public therapeutic communities. But we have around 60, 65 therapeutic communities run by NGOs. We have the regulatory power, so we can send for NGO-run therapeutic communities the patients that need their care. And we pay for it. We pay 80% of the costs. And who pays the remaining 20? The remaining 20. Either the family, if they are able to do so, or the social security, if needed. So nobody stays out of treatment by lack of resources. Mm -hmm. There's always a solution to support the costs of those treatments. We have therapeutic communities for minors, for women, for pregnant women or women with little child. We have therapeutic communities for the elderly. We have therapeutic communities addressing mostly alcohol-related problems for minors. Therapeutic communities must ensure that they attend school while doing their treatment. And what kinds of treatment are you seeing the most interest in or the most, I mean, I hesitate to say compliance with, but, you know, what's most popular, I guess, is the right way to ask? <laughs> well, I would say that the biggest problems that were posed in our society were a result of opioid use, mm -hmm. namely heroin. So the most, our main goal is to have people functional, able to have a life as close to normal, if I may say so, as possible. 
And the most popular uh, modalities for treatment include substitution treatment. Common substitution treatments include doses of methadone and buprenorphine, which minimize or alleviate the symptoms of opioid withdrawal. And they are compatible with life, uh, working life, family life, and so on. So, And this is the main goal, is to have people able to be functional and to have these normal lives. Yeah. All of these programs together cost Portugal on the order of 75 million euros a year. That's for prevention, treatment, harm reduction, reintegration, dissuasion, and also research. For reference, Portugal has a population of about 10 million people. So this is very, very cheap. Um, people tend to ask me, when you decriminalize the budget from prisons, from justice, mm-hmm. came into health, that was not the case. Oh No, no, it was, it was not. I would say that the supply side, justice, law enforcement, and so on, they kept their budget. But after the decision of decriminalizing was taken, they have much less clients. So the conditions in prisons, for instance, improved a lot. At the same time, the increase in the budget of the health was very, very slow, but uh, constant. So, But it's very modest, as I said. So no major cost savings to the state as a result of decriminalization? No. Mm-hmm. No, but not a big increase. And the results in terms of life savings and and the improvement of uh, personal and uh, public health uh, indicators is very worth the cost. To really understand what Portugal got for its investment, you have to understand how dire the situation was. Erwin became very, very popular. And it spread very, very, very rapidly in our society. We'll get into that after a break. In the 80s and 90s, heroin was one of many drugs that flooded Portugal. Dr. Jean Goulau, who is now Portugal's national coordinator for drugs and drug addiction, says it started with a regime change. It's important to say, as you know, we lived for a long time dictatorship. We had a very close and controlled country during the Salazar, maybe it sounds to you, Salazar regime, Mm -hmm. during which we had a tough political police, censorship. We were a very closed society with difficulties to move around, difficulties to travel abroad. In the last years of the regime, late 60s and 70s, we were also dealing with colonial war in our ancient colonies, Angola, Mozambique, and so on. And most of our young male population was sent there to serve as soldiers, mostly against their will. And down there, drug use was tolerated or even incentivated, a little bit like the Americans in Vietnam in order to keep people happy with that war. And most of that people, of those young boys, developed some habits of using substances. Then in 74, we had our carnation revolution, 
a sudden openness to new new things, to new habits, to new set of uh, very fast changes in our society. And shortly after, we had the decolonization process with the return of soldiers and settlers from those colonies to mainland. Almost a million people coming back in a total population of 10 million. When those soldiers and settlers came back, they brought tons, literally tons of cannabis that was made available for everybody, for their relatives, for their friends, for their families. And there was sudden explosion on experimentation. And shortly after, all the other substances were made available. Some organizations brought and made available heroin, cocaine, LSD, you name it, in a completely naive society towards drugs. And heroin became very, very popular. And it spread very, very, very rapidly in our society. It got to a point where about one in every 100 Portuguese people used heroin in a problematic way. Although that's not a direct reflection of opioid use. Galau says that while marginalized populations were certainly more affected, the disparities were not as stark as in the U.S. Heroin affected lower, middle, and upper classes, laborers and politicians alike. It was spread all over all social groups. And in my view, this was crucial to create a framework, a mental framework towards this. It is different if you imagine medium class housewife probably discussing to, with the priest and saying, my boy is not a criminal. Is someone in need of help, in need of treat, in need of support, but he or she will not benefit in going into the jail. It was in those conditions that doctors, including Gulau, started developing the public health approach that's in use today, and that also led to decriminalization. The idea was popular with the public, but as you heard earlier, a struggle to get through Parliament. Ultimately, advocates were successful, and decriminalization went into effect in 2001. Things improved but not instantaneously. I want to talk about some transient effects that were observed after the decriminalization policy was enacted. For a while, drug experimentation and use went up and murders went up. And then those things came back down. What do you think was happening there? Why did these things increase and then drop again? Well, the drug experimentation is probably an effect of decriminalization. I'm not completely sure that it was an effective increase in experimentation, but as our stats are mostly based on self-reported polls, probably people were able to be more sincere and and self-report a use that otherwise would be kept a secret. Mm, great point. As to murders related to drugs, I don't see a direct relation with decriminalization. What happened, in fact, is the police, law enforcement forces, became much, much more effective in dealing with bulk trafficking because instead of spending all their time and energy and all their means in dealing with mere users, 
at the street level instead of going step by step and climbing the, the stairs of the trafficking organization, starting from the users. They started to cooperate more intensely with their counterparts, international counterparts. They started to cooperate among them the different police uh, police and uh, authority uh, forces uh, inside the country. With time, Gulau says things have improved significantly. Crime associated with drug trafficking is down. HIV infections are down. The number of problematic heroin users was cut roughly in half. There have been a few adjustments. In just the past few years, Portugal has added stationary and mobile safe consumption sites, places where people can use drugs with clean supplies and under supervision, to prevent overdose deaths and infections. There have also been global changes that have ripple effects. Drug use varies with the conditions that uh, society is facing. In difficult times, we see the predominance of substances uh, like uh, heroin or alcohol. In others, we see the predominance of cocaine or party of drugs, uh, cocaine, ecstasy, and so on. And we now that we are facing difficult times, we lived a very recent crisis related to the pandemic. And now this one related to the war and the economic difficulties that are approaching or we are already feeling. We fear that substances like heroin or other opiates may come back. Luckily for Portugal, fentanyl, that extremely potent synthetic opioid that's driving overdoses in the U.S., hasn't arrived yet. It's hard to say whether that's a deciding factor in why San Francisco is seeing more overdose deaths than all of Portugal. Fentanyl alone doesn't account for the difference. The proportion of fentanyl overdoses is steadily rising. It's now more than half of all overdose deaths. But even excluding fentanyl overdoses, San Francisco still has multiple times the overdose deaths that Portugal does. Methamphetamine, especially combined with fentanyl, is also contributing. But Galau expects fentanyl will find its way to Portugal. And looking at what's going on in the States, in general, he sees a lot of familiar problems. In the United States, at least in some states, you are now facing the same kind of uh, situation that we lived here related to heroin in the, in the 80s and 90s. That means that everybody or every family can be affected by it. So I believe this is a kind of a window of opportunity to launch a serious discussion about the drugs policies that you have, being the most the richest and the most powerful country in the world. San Francisco in particular is doing a lot of the things that Golau recommended when I asked him his advice for this city. Its official policy is harm reduction. There is outreach and education, peer-to-peer resources, inpatient and outpatient treatment, distribution of naloxone, the overdose reversal drug, particularly to those most likely to be in a position to use it, which is drug users. But at this point, the local opioid situation is worse on many metrics than Portugal's. In 2019, the latest year I could find comparable stats, San Francisco alone saw more than six times as many overdose deaths as the entire nation of Portugal, which has 12 times as many people. There are a few things this city doesn't have that Portugal does. San Francisco has no official safe consumption site. 
And whatever the city's reputation might be for leniency, all drug possession is not decriminalized. The district attorney has said it's not her office's policy to prosecute someone for simply having drug paraphernalia. But the police chief said earlier this year that officers had been ordered to crack down on drug use. A jump in possession and paraphernalia arrests and citations followed that. And most importantly, treatment is not easily accessible to all. Some people report waiting months or being turned away again and again. Some can't pay or get coverage for treatment. The Department of Public Health says just under 40% of its health network patients who have a substance use disorder got treatment in the last year. The San Francisco Health Network is the system of care for low-income San Francisco residents. That's a much better proportion than the rest of the nation, but still less than half. A directly comparable statistic isn't easily available from Portugal. The estimates that do exist of what portion of people with substance use disorders are in treatment are grouped by the type of drug used. And they're out of date. Golau attributes that to the pandemic. But he says in 2018, treatment coverage for opioid users specifically was at 53%. And Golau says access to dignified treatment is key. I believe that investment should be made in making available those policies, treatment facilities, harm reduction policies, education, reintegration of people, the real recover of people and including them in society as valid elements able to have a life that is pleasant for them is first thing. It won't be easy, he says, but he sees a chance to make things better. I believe that this is a very difficult and serious momentum for you, but also an opportunity to change really the way you have been addressing those problems. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. And we want to check out your ideas. Do you have a solution you want the city to pursue? Or do you know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. See you next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext. <laughs>